Lord, our sins hinder us from running the race, but your grace will give us wings. So dwell among us in your power and help us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, please. Matthew 1, verse 18. I'm calling this Joseph and the Grinch. (laughs) Or a subtitle is, How Joseph Almost Stole Christmas. (laughs) Matthew chapter 1. Now, in the book by Dr. Seuss, 1957, called the, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, you have the Grinch, who's this mean-spirited, ill-natured creature who lives in isolation up on a cliff overlooking Whoville. And he's been isolated there for 53 years. And he despises Christmas, not just because Whoville becomes noisy and ruckus with all of its cheer, but especially because of the carols and the joy that people express during Christmas. So one year he comes up with this sick, demented, twisted version of Santa Claus. And he decides on Christmas Eve to go inside each of the homes of Whoville. And rather than give gifts, he takes everything that's in their homes, bundles it up, and then on Christmas morning, he's about to take the possessions of the entire town and throw them off a mountain when all of a sudden he hears, what's that? Cheer? They're singing in Whoville. They're singing Christmas carols. And they're still joyful despite losing everything that they have. And this moves the Grinch. This changes him. Something shifts And he recognizes there's something more to this Christmas season than I expected. And so he then takes all of their possessions and comes down to the town and redistributes them to everybody and joins their celebration in Christmas. That's how the Grinch stole Christmas, but then gave it back. Sometimes we forget that the Grinch actually has a uh, conversion, if you will. He changes because the Grinch, now we always associate with people who hate Christmas, right? You don't want to be a Grinch. You don't want to be someone who steals Christmas. Joseph almost does that in Matthew chapter 1. We have a culture, um, we we would change the terminology. We would say how Joseph canceled Christmas. That's what we would say. We find something we disagree with, so we cancel it or we cancel them and we banish them. Well, Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant without his doing, and he is about to cancel Mary. You cancel Mary, you cancel Christ, you cancel Christ, you cancel Christmas, you become the Grinch. That's what is about to happen, almost happen, but Joseph has a conversion. He leans into God's unexpected plan. He leans into the challenge and the difficulties that he faces. He he has to adapt, I'm sorry, adopt to the fact that God doesn't always work in the easiest means for us. So that sometimes his path is the hardest path. Sometimes he takes conventional culture and snaps it and says, I do things differently. I go under the radar. I come where I'm least expected. And Joseph has to recognize that. And Joseph will then adopt God's plan and become fully obedient to it. Joseph is a hero. Mary gets a lot of rap in Christmas, and she should. 
Um, the what she went through to bear Christ and the fact that she was chosen is honorable beyond compare, that she would be the blood donor of Christ's body, if you will, that he takes his body and blood from her womb. That is a high and special privilege. But Joseph often gets forgotten, and the role that he plays um, is admirable in this story. So uh, let's read it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth, that's literally in the Greek, it's Genesis. Now the Genesis, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph doesn't know that. So the plot thickens. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, look, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. <clears throat> when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph in this story embodies the purpose of Christmas. He embodies the purpose that in Joseph and Mary, uh, about to go astray, they become reunified by the end of the story. And Joseph embodies the meaning of Christmas in how God and humanity, heaven and earth, had gone astray, but will be once again reunited. And what is the source of this reuniting? Christ in the womb of Mary. It's a beautiful little microcosmic picture of the gospel as a whole. So here's how this narrative works in its five parts. You have the opening. You have this betrothal in verse 18. And notice Matthew's wording is very careful. He's very careful to, um, to tell us what didn't happen and what did happen. And he does this in such a concise and beautiful way. Masterful writer Matthew is. He does this very concisely. But in addition, I want you to also notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't explain who Mary and Joseph are. There's no backstory. There's no, okay, so, so that the audiences know these are who these people are. No, there's an assumption that the readers that he originally wrote for knew who Joseph and Mary are. This is a well-known report in the church. He also doesn't go very far out of his way to explain the virgin conception of Mary, of Christ in Mary. Uh, this also seems to be very lightly touched on and an assumption within the early church. But notice how carefully he words it so that the outsider cannot say, well, this is what happened. He says, now the birth of Christ took place in this way. I was like, be ready. This is a, this is a different report. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed, we'll qualify that phrase in a moment. When he had been betrothed, she had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. So there's a uh, there's a partnership in this betrothal, but it has not yet been physically brought together. Um, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we know it's not Joseph. And now we're wondering, who else is it? Well, Matthew tells us it's the Holy Spirit. So very concisely just puts right into our minds what is happening here. Christ is being conceived in the womb of Mary, not by human effort, not by human origin, but by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I'm not going to go into what the virgin birth means tonight. We will do that in the new year. Um, There is lots to say about the theology of Christ coming through a virgin and why he comes this way and what it means and what it accomplishes. There's lots to say. And it needs its own night. But tonight we're going to just basically stick with Joseph's side of this story. So that'll come. That'll come. And the long promised Athanasius the Great story and uh, his contribution of the incarnation and our belief in it. That'll all, that's all going to come together. So just be patient. Not that a lot of you are really on your edge of your seat for it anyways. But I am. Um, the betrothal. So a betrothal is a contract between two families, right? This is like an engagement, but it's higher than an engagement because in the Jewish mindset, this was one year prior to actual marriage, you were considered married, but they waited a year and lived with their parents to kind of get themselves ready for marriage and also sort of like a testing period. Like, is um, has anything happened before the betrothal? A year will tell you whether or not that's the case, if you know what I mean. Um, and so then after this one year period of being married, but Married legally, but not practically. After this one-year period, the man would then come and claim the woman and bring her to his house. So we are somewhere in this one-year period where they're legally married, but not living together or with each other. That's what's happening. So Mary, shouldn't, there should be no birthing things happening here. Um, yet it's happening. And Joseph must be beside himself. And what, this makes me look awful. It, this would bring shame upon him in the society. And now he has to do something about this, right? You can't just let this be without being ostracized from the rest of your Jewish community. But he also uh, is a just man and doesn't want to be harsh with her. So he's in a, he's in a conundrum. But this is our opening. So we see, okay, This is what's going on, but now the conflict happens. She's pregnant, and we're going, oh my. Joseph is going, oh my. So, um, infidelity during betrothal is actually considered adultery. It's not like, you know, in our culture where it's like, well, you shouldn't have done that. In their society, this was as good as you committed. Well, in the law of God, this is a felony, basically. Adultery was worthy of death, even. This is what Deuteronomy 22, verse 23 says. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the field, children, um, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he did wrong. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. That's what the law says. Now, that fits this context. 
something in Joseph's perspective, something happened here. And if I am to do what God says I'm supposed to do, this is what I'm supposed to do. Now, we don't see him considering stoning, and that's likely because the Romans took this right away from the Jews. So this was off the table. So the best, the next thing Joseph could do is divorce her. And that's what he is contemplating. Now, rather than making a big show of this, he decides to do this quietly. We're told that Joseph is a just man, um, just or righteous, same word in the Greek. It means that he's upright, he's upstanding. Uh, a, a simple way to put it is that it means that to be just is to just do what God tells you to do. That's what a just person does. They just do what God says. And so we can expect that Joseph is going to follow the law. We can expect this. He does what God says until God blows our minds and says something else, which he's going to have to be extra just to say, wow, okay, I'm going to go against conventional culture here. So conventional culture expects Joseph to divorce her. That's what the world expects. And Joseph now has to go against that. So there'd be absolutely no shame in having this happen. This is so expected that the Jews had what's called a Mishnah. And the Mishnah was an oral tradition, an oral commentary on the law that was done in between the Testaments. And this is how the Mishnah describes what is supposed to happen in this situation. It says that if there is an unfaithful woman, she is forbidden to marry either her husband or her lover. So that's that privilege is off the table for you. Rabbi Judah said this. Let this be from me. Uh, oh, he said that this is what should be written out in the certificate of divorce. This is what Deuteronomy 24 says. All you do is write a certificate of divorce, give it to the woman, say bye. Uh, this is what needed to be in it. He said... Let this be from me, our writ of divorce and letter of dismissal and deed of liberation, that you may marry whoever you will. And then he says that it should be signed by two or more witnesses. So that's how quietly Joseph can do this. He can simply write the deed. He can have two people witness him giving it to Mary and say, bon voyage, you're free, which actually means in the society that she's pretty much ruined and toast because who's going to... Who's going to bring her into the house now, right? Um, that's the context Joseph finds himself in. That's the conflict. And so we, one can only imagine um, what he's actually feeling like. Is he heartbroken or is this just like, oh, business as usual? Like, what is going on with Joseph? But in verse 20, we have divine intervention. We have a climax with the arrival of the angel in his dream. And the angel basically announces to Joseph that what you're experiencing is the end of exile. What you're experiencing might seem traumatic. It might seem troublesome. It might seem like something that's out of your plan. It might put this big burden in the way of your life. You didn't ask for this. You didn't expect this. This was, nobody could have, there's no insurance for this, right? It's like one of those acts of nature where they call it divine acts. When, they, when, uh, when insurance doesn't cover something, an act of God, that's what it is, right? An act of God, literally, here's an act of God, and Joseph's like, ah, no one can plan for this. But in the midst of this unforeseen, unexpected, unplanned, and totally, uh, potentially ruinous of your plans, this moment is the announcement that Israel's long, painful exile is finally coming to an end. 
O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. What is Israel mourning? What does their exile look like? Well, we, we, of course, right, we've been through the Old Testament and just recently finished it. So we're very familiar with those last books that the exile is a big theme. But what happens precisely is the Jews experience three major problems. The first is their sin. Their sin is what caused their dislocation. They're, they're being exiled from their homeland. They're being driven into captivity under another nation. Their sin, the Old Testament is very clear. The prophets are abundantly forceful in their wording. It's their sin that has caused this separation. So sin is their first problem. Second, as a result of this sin and this separation, this exile, they have a loss of God's presence. They once had the Holy of Holies in the center of the temple, in the center of Jerusalem, where God's presence was manifest and real and alive. But when Israel sinned and brought the exile, there was a separation from his presence. Ezekiel reports in Ezekiel 10 through 12 that he watched in a prophetic vision the presence of God leaving the Holy of Holies, then leaving the temple, then leaving the city altogether and going down the Mount of Olives on the backside where, bye, don't see you anymore they lose the presence of god and then they're in that pagan land now and remember uh psalm 137 says how can we sing god's songs in a foreign land they cannot even sing their psalms anymore there's a lot so there's sin there's a loss of god's presence and then third there's a loss of the davidic king yeah, the Davidic lineage is still alive, right? Uh, Je- uh, Jehoiakim is still alive in uh, in Babylon, but he's not on any throne. He's the king's servant. And so Israel no longer has their promised eternal throne with a descendant of David. Until Joseph, experiencing his own miniature embodied exile, is ready to be separated from Mary, He goes to bed in the darkness of night, in the dark night of his soul, in his troublesome, in his, why has God taken this from me? He's then visited from on high, and he's told, these three problems are going to be solved in what you thought was a tragedy. So here's what the angel says. Um, Verse 20, in the middle of verse 20, Joseph, son of David, There's an heir. Joseph, son of David. The Davidic throne has an heir. What is in Mary is part of the son of David. He will... Now, we're not told this explicitly in Matthew, but we know from the earlier context of the genealogy and later that he is the Davidic heir. The throne will be reclaimed. Problem number one is solved. Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, Mary's womb, the Holy Spirit has come into her womb, and Christ is being birthed in here. The presence of God, him who is eternal, who has made everything, is now being crammed inside of her womb, so that her womb has become the temple of God. She is the holy of holies because the very presence of God is residing in her. 
there's a fabulous phrase um, uh, that she is more spacious than the heavens because the one who the heavens cannot contain is contained in her womb. Amazing. This is the Holy Police. God's presence has come not only back to Israel, but inside humanity through Mary first. What? It's from the Holy Spirit. She, verse 21, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek uh, we, I'm going to say Greekized because we're just being like low-minded here. Um, we, technically, it's Hellenized, but Jesus is the Hebrew name Joshua turned into the Greek form. Jesus, Joshua are the same name. Joshua means Yahweh saves, and the angels being very clear: what is Jesus going to save his people from? Their sins. Here we have a threefold announcement that the exile's coming to a close. Sins are being dealt with. So now there's a pathway for God's people to be reunited with him. The Davidic heir is born and he will sit on the thrones so that God's promises will be fulfilled to his people. And God's presence is so near that he's now dwelling within a human person so that now God and humanity can become as one as child inside womb of mother is one. That's astonishing. This is more than just fixing the exile problem. This is fixing it and going above and beyond what God had originally intimated to his people. And so it becomes even clearer in verse 22 when the angel cites Isaiah, as uh, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet Isaiah, we read this earlier in our service. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew tells us what Emmanuel means, because Emmanuel is, that's the Hebrew word for, which means God with us. So if it wasn't alluded to by God being inside Mary, it's now explicitly told that he is going to be the promised Emmanuel, God with us. Exile is solved. Now, just to be super clear, when we're talking about Israel's exile, we're talking about our exile. Because Adam and Eve were the first to experience a divorce from God as they were exiled from the Garden of Eden. Israel was simply chosen to solve this exile problem by being given a new Adam and Eve in Abraham and Sarah and a new Eden in the promised land. And they come and they inhabit it and the kingdom is being built up and it's going to be the Garden of Eden all over again. God dwells among this people. He walks among this people. He gives them their, their his presence in the, te- in the temple and they have a Davidic heir and blah, blah, blah. It's like going really well, right? And then Israel does what Adam and Eve did. They also are severed from his presence. There's another exile. So when Israel join, when Israel goes into exile, Israel joins humanity in exile. So now for God to save his people, he must save all from exile. And so this announcement that Christ is the reunification of heaven and earth, of the divine and the human, and this will be more in our message about the virgin birth, but... um in the reunification of the divine nature with the human nature. We were meant to be partners and sharers of God's nature, but we lost that capability through our corruption in our sin and in the fall. But when Jesus saves us from our sins, he saves the barrier which prohibits us from participating and abiding in the divine nature. This is good news. And this came at Joseph's darkest moment. This came when he thought that God had ruined things. And God's like, no, Joseph, 
You need to learn to see things from my perspective. So he does. We have the result of this climactic God intervention. We see in verse 24 that Joseph woke from sleep and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son. So what's the result of this? Joseph goes from about to divorce Mary to, wait, no, I'm going to marry her. God's intervention brings the exile into reunification. And so Joseph does what God is going to do with us. He reunites us. Now, Joseph was the one who wanted to walk out, not Mary. Joseph wanted to walk out, just like we wanted to walk out on God. Because God always does things the way we don't want to do them. Don't eat from that tree, but I want to. So we walk out on God. Abraham, wait for the promised son, but I want to try now. So he tries with Hagar. We keep walking out on God's ways, but God is always there waiting for us. And it's we who must be converted, we who must be turned. And then it's when this moment happens, Joseph is embodying the gospel that this is humanity coming back to God. Mary embodying God here, literally embodying God. Uh, She's representing God. And he comes back, we come back to God. And how is this done? It's through Christ. Christ is the means of reconciliation between heaven and earth. Eve, the first virgin, as far as we know, Eve didn't have children yet in Eden. She brought forth death, but Mary brings forth life. She undoes what Eve did in a beautiful way. And so now we see the resolution of the story at the end of verse 25. It ends with this sentence, and Joseph called his name Jesus. The name the angel told him to call Mary. So Joseph is now in full obedience. He takes Mary as his wife, and then he names Jesus what he was told to name him. Now, what we need to understand is, I've always read this forever until preparing for this week. I always just assumed, like, like, okay, cool, he gave the child a name. Like, we all do that. He's like, oh, Jesus is a good name. I didn't even think I was going to have a kid for all I knew. Oh, so cool. Thank you. You picked a name for me. Uh, It wasn't this simple. This is actually highly significant because in Jewish culture... And in ancient societies, really, um, it is the naming of something that claims ownership of something. God, when he creates things, at the end of each day of creation, he names it because it shows his rulership or his possession of it. When Joseph names Jesus, he is gesturing that I accept Christ as my own child. I'm not marrying Mary and then seeing him as some sort of accident or some sort of interruption to our happy life together. By naming him, he's claiming him as his own son, which is very important because our genealogy traces from Abraham to Joseph. And so now it's now Jesus is in the lineage of Joseph through Joseph's own acceptance of Christ and adoption of him. When he adopts Christ by naming him, he becomes a full legal son, an actual real son of Joseph. That's how the Jew would see it. And that's how it happens with us too, is that we who were once estranged from God, God adopts into his household. And when he adopts, we can become full sons, like Christ is a full son. This is how Hebrews can call us his brothers and sisters. We are part of God's household. And he gives us, he names us, he names us, which makes us his. And we are fully God's children. (laughs) 
We weren't even looking for these solutions, were we? We just knew something was wrong, so we turned to any old created thing to satisfy and itch or scratch, scratch or itch. And God said, no, 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 I not only can scratch that itch for you, but I can make you what you never knew you need to become. I will restore you to what you forgot you once were. What a good God to pursue us like this. So Joseph was almost the Grinch. He was so close to canceling Mary. That's bad. I I disregard that. That's not how God works. Like we can actually get into this mindset and we become the Grinch because we cancel what God's doing around us. And then who knows? You're canceling Christ himself. We need to be careful that we don't just do conventional culture. Conventional culture right now tells us if you disagree with something, cut it out. Um. We need to make sure that primarily with human beings, we don't cut anyone out because we don't know how they fit in the big picture of God's story in our lives. If we cancel each other, we cancel Christ. Joseph is going to cancel Mary, and that would have been very Grinch-like. We never know how God's working and who he's in and who he's behind We have to be okay with God disrupting our plans, with him blindsiding us with something we didn't see coming. Be comforted, brothers and sisters, that when life throws its hardest curveball at you, God's the one who threw it. It didn't go out of control. It went exactly where he wanted it. So how can we, like Joseph, not be a Grinch? How can we roll with these punches? How can we stop canceling God's work in our life, no matter how hard? Well, I will suggest three lessons we learned from Joseph that we can easily adopt tonight and take into our new year. Number one, how can we not be a Grinch? Or how not to be a Grinch? How about that? Number one, pause your impulses. Hardest lesson in our culture. Pause your impulses. What's Joseph's impulse? In verse 19, oh, I see what's happening here. I know what happened. I know what I should do. Impulse is divorce. This is what culture told him to do. This is what he's conditioned to think like. So his impulse is not necessarily his fault. It's culturally bred upon him. But that's nonetheless his impulse. It's his first nature to react a certain way. You and I have impulses that were taught to us by the world, that were taught to us by our culture, that were taught to us by our parents, that are taught to us by our own flesh's selfishness. Something happens and we react this way. We know instantly how to handle a situation. It's our nature. But the grace and will of God, the reason why Christ comes to us is to heal this nature and give us a second nature. So Sydney, uh, other way, Sydney and Rosie both play guitar. They both sing. And others of you do too, but they were up here tonight. Uh, Sandy went through a long haul of learning to sing and play the guitar and play drums at the same time. Um, we do miss that, Sandy, the little drum kit. You make, make Katrina lead, and then you play the drum set. Um, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> where was I going? Oh, yeah, second nature. Uh, okay, 
I remember being in middle school, desiring to play guitar, but watching people as they're leading worship music, seeing them do all these things with their fingers on these, okay, it looks like infinite possibilities to a, a novice. There's six strings up and down, and then across there's like 12 and then more frets, right? It's like, so there's these infinite options, and you see, oh, and then you have five fingers, and so you see them doing different things with different fingers on different frets on different strings, and it makes no sense while you're looking at it. You're like, how do they know to do that? It's like, he's just like, oh yeah, this one will be good here, and then that will be good there, and you, you think it's like all spontaneous, but then you learn like, oh, there's chord structures, and they're they're learning to do that, but then when you start taking lessons, you're like, my fingers are bleeding! They're gonna die! This hurts so bad! And then you have to work and work and work to get this finger to curve a way it's never curved before, to reach that B string when you're trying to do the D. Like, that was a hard one for me, or the C, and not make your palm rest upon all the rest of the strings. Like, how do you do this? Well, little by little, what was not natural is now becoming a second nature. So when someone says E chord, you can just throw your fingers there. You don't have to think about it. And that's then how people learn how to sing and play their guitar and change things on the fly is because their instrument becomes so one with them, it's a second nature. It's as if when we have these impulses, we can have different impulses is what we're saying. We can retrain our souls and our natures to have a different way of reacting to things. This is what we call sanctification. This is the work of the Spirit in our life. And if we open ourselves to the Holy Spirit, He will come into us and birth in us a new nature. But we have to first learn how to hit pause on our impulses. Because we will never get to the second nature if we just react the way we've always reacted. You'll never change. You're just, you're just digging your rut deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, there are lots of practical ways to put pause on your impulses. But maybe I'll leave you, us with just the simple consideration of just be aware of them. And, and don't feel like you have to react. When something happens, just take a breath. Just wait. Now, on the side, as a footnote, I will say that fasting is a great way to practice putting pause on your impulses. Because when you see food, you're like, I want that donut. But fasting tells you, I'm not having that donut today. Impulse control. Anyways, that's one way that we can do that. Uh, pause your impulses. Joseph says, it says that... Um, in verse 19, he was going to divorce her quietly, but in verse 20, he considered these things. So he had an impulse, but he puts pause on it. He doesn't say, say what? And then he's like, get this thing written now. Two witnesses, all right, you're done. Like, I'm so hurt by this, I won't want to see your face again. That's an impulse. Not what he does. So first, pause your impulses. That's how not to be a Grinch. Second, ponder and pray on your bed ponder and pray on your bed. The bed doesn't have to be literal. It just happens to be what Joseph is doing. Uh, ponder and pray on your bed. Now, as I was considering this, how Joseph, it says in verse 20, he considered these things, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Uh, it dawned on me, okay, Joseph is considering these things and he's like laying down in bed and the way we kind of do, like our minds just start to go and unravel the day. And he's, right, he's going to bed with this on his mind. And as he considers this, the angel comes in a dream. So it's clear that we have this, like, bed scene. Um, and then it dawned on me that the Psalms record something like this twice. Psalm 4 is a whole psalm about the psalmist right before going to sleep is pondering uh, God's ways on his bed. He says there, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts and offer right sacrifices to God. Psalm 4 is a great guide into how to go to sleep. Because at the end it says, in peace, 
I, I will fall asleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Um, there we see a positive example of what we should do on our bed is we should ponder the things of God. We should ponder the way he's worked in our lives and where we were angry in the day where we had impulsive reactions and did not do them well. Uh, we give those to God. That's the right sacrifice it's talking about. We offer these mistakes to God and this is how we should end our day. And Joseph perhaps is as a just man. Maybe he's even literally reciting Psalm four on his bed. The Psalms were not foreign to Jews like they are to us. Then there's Psalm 36. In Psalm 36, uh, maybe I'll just, yeah. In Psalm 36, we have there, no, it's, yeah. We have there the, the, the wicked man going to sleep. Uh, Psalm 36, verse 1. Transgression, that's sin, that's evil. It speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So what does the wicked man do on his bed? He communes, not with God. He communes with evil thoughts. It goes on to say, he flatters himself in his own eyes uh, so that his iniquity may not be found out and hated. So in other words, like, I didn't sin today. Oh, no, I did everything just right. It's their fault that all that happened. And the reason I gave them what they deserved. And that's what a wicked man does on his bed. And then it says, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. Then verse 4. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. He has no impulse control. Because on his bed, he does not ponder and pray. He ponders and plots. And he runs over in his mind, I can't believe Mary. I can't believe this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get her so good. I'm going to make sure the whole town, I'm going to put this on billboards. I'm going to put on social media. We're going to have a cancel Mary campaign and she will never find another person who speaks the human, the Hebrew tongue to speak with her ever again. Like that's not outlandish in our culture. That's actually a very, oh yeah, that happens. And that's what a Psalm 36 ponder on your bed person will do but a psalm 4 will be more like joseph and open his heart to god and god comes to him in his sleep so ponder and pray on your bed uh that's the second way how not to be a grinch third way how not to be a grinch is to penetrate your imagination with god's story penetrate your imagination with god's story so in verses 22 and 23 the angel speaks to joseph through a scene within the Jewish story, the Old Testament story. It's the story of King Ahaz, worried because two kings are teaming up to beat up Judah. And he's like, we're going to die. And Isaiah says, no, we're not. Ask God for a sign. And Ahaz is so unbelieving. He's like, I will not ask God for a sign. And Isaiah's like, fine, he'll give you one anyways. The virgin will conceive and give birth to his son and call him Emmanuel. When you see the woman give birth to Emmanuel, then know Ahaz that God is with us and will deliver us from our enemies. That's what's happening in Isaiah's time. Does that happen in Isaiah's time? Yes. But as prophecy so often does, it works in cycles. And that's the small fulfillment. And the big fulfillment, the angel says, is here. And Joseph, you are in a time like King Ahaz in Israel. You're besieged by the enemies of sin. And the virgin will conceive and give birth to Emmanuel. And when you see this child, you will know that we are saved from our sins. And the exile is over. And humanity and divinity will once again live in harmony and unity together. 
That's what you will know, Joseph. But none of this will make sense to Joseph if he, if he doesn't keep in mind the ways that God works through history. But his imagination is penetrated with the story of God so that even in his sleep, the angel can pull from the files the Isaiah story. And, I, and Joseph wakes him like, oh, that's what's happening. That doesn't come natural. That, that doesn't come if we don't immerse ourselves, our imagination, and what God does. For example, we just saw the genealogy in verses 1 through 17. That was, remember, the truncated story of God's people. If we don't steep our imaginations in this story of names, then guess what we always live on? We live on our name. And the only thing we can conceive of is what God is doing in my life. We cannot conceive that maybe what he's doing in my life is actually affecting his greater story. We become small-minded and selfish, and this is why we, we can't handle what happens to us. But, but God wants to open up our imagination to his grander story. And Joseph is able to see what's happening is not about me. It's about the world and about salvation for all. Whew. If we, and I think Joseph is, this is the case with Joseph once the angel visits him, I think he understands that even in this story, God already told us that this was possible and that this would happen. The new Adam and the new Eve, Abraham, Sarah, the newest one is Joseph and Mary, but Abraham and Sarah conceived in a very similar way. Sarah could not conceive a child. They were beyond the age of conception. And yet, God comes to them and says, nothing's impossible with God. The exact same phrase, by the way, that the angel Gabriel tells Mary in Luke chapter 1. Nothing's impossible with God. Linking the stories forever together in the Bible. And anyone who knows God's story knows that if he can make the... Uh, the, the church father, I read a bunch of, I think John Chrysostom said something like, if he can take a stick that is withered and dried out and make fruit grow on it, he was, he was alluding to Sarah and Abraham as those dried out sticks. If he can make them once again bear fruit, then why can't he put a child inside a virgin of conceivable age in her womb? I mean, honestly, the Bible sets us up for seeing the virgin conception as a layup compared to what he's done in history. We need to penetrate our imaginations with God's story because we limit God with our small world wrapped around ourselves. So in these ways, we shall not be the Grinch and we shall be a blessing to the world as Joseph and Mary brought the blessing to the nations originally promised to Abraham, fulfilled through their obedience both saying yes to God when they did not understand what he was doing. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen.